This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Plantsman Bob Hyland describes himself as a happy wanderer. Having studied and worked in horticulture across the country, he is currently owner of Highland Garden Design and Contained Exuberance, a seasonal garden store in Portland, Oregon, which focuses on contemporary pots and plantings for the garden. Bob is a plant world activist and advocate, and he joins us today to share stories of the life of a plants person, a state of body and mind that is fully integrated into all that he does and loves. Bob joins us today via Skype from his home in Portland to share more. Welcome, Bob. Thank you, Jennifer. Happy to happy to be here. So it's finally spring here on our side of the world on the West Coast, you a little bit further north than me. I think one of the things that's most compelling about your story to me is how this passion is deeply integrated into all aspects of your life. And I think it's a wonderful story to share with other plants, people who may not be familiar with the extensiveness of this world that your life really illustrates so beautifully. So to get started, I wanted you to describe for listeners your current kind of work in plants, both professionally and personally. So my six years in Portland, and my partner and I, Andrew, moved here in 2010, 2011, here a year before me. And since I've been in Portland, I have been the owner of a garden design business called Highland Garden Design. And I have a shop where I sell hard goods, pottery and garden decor, and try to help people match great plantings to those pots. Um, I really view container design, it's movable art. Uh, a lot of it is textural, beautiful shapes, extremely well-made, frost and winter resistant, so they will have a long life with you in your garden. So that's kind of what I've been doing. Um, and I've aligned myself uh, with my good friends who, uh, Paul Bonine and, and Greg Shepard, who run Zira Plants, and I am right next door to them. So it's kind of this happy marriage of a nursery next door to a design and pottery business. Prior to coming to Portland, my partner, Andrew Beckman, and I uh, had an eight to you know, almost nine year stint at running our own nursery in the Hudson Valley in zone 5B. It was called Loomis Creek Nursery, and it was a specialty nursery uh, regional, you know, selling great perennials and shrubs to gardeners, savvy gardeners in the Hudson Valley, many of whom had second homes uh, upstate, you know, who had a touch with New York City and really excellent plantsmen and avid gardeners. So, yeah. So I'm going to have a step back and I would like you to tell us a little bit about your earliest influences, the, the kind of people and places and plants that influenced you early in your life, and then your journey story that led you from there to the work that you're doing now and the work right before it with Loomis Creek. 
So my earliest recollections of gardening really kind of take me back to, I couldn't have been more than two or three, but I remember we lived with my grandparents, my father's parents, and I just remember vividly kind of wandering through my grandpa grew pole beans every year. I'm sure he grew a lot of other vegetables around it, but I guess I was that's what sticks with me, these giant teepees of pole beans and kind of wandering through them as a, you know, a small boy, a mm. toddler, yeah. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> we then moved to Farmingdale. You know, when I think about this, it's like, well, we moved to Farmingdale. Farming, huh? Uh, 35 miles outside. And this was post-World War II. That kind of dates me and ages me, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Um born in 1950. And we, 35 miles outside of New York City on Long Island, was really very rural and agricultural at that mm -hmm. time. And we were really on the edge of potato fields, which was being built upon at post-World War. Housing galore, you know, being put up for returning servicemen and, and the burgeoning population of New York. So, my earliest childhood memories there in our first home were kind of seeing those potato fields kind of out behind our house. And I sort of remember, again, the vegetable gardening thing and growing, you know, I just have, when I think about it, tiger lilies and four o'clocks and mm. cherry tomatoes. Those are the kinds of things that stick in my mind. But yeah. I guess the gardening thing was, you know, couldn't help it, right? Edge of potato fields, I had to be a potato farmer. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were living with your grandparents, was that before Farmingdale or that was in Farmingdale? That was before Farmingdale. And it where was, was probably, that? And that was in Lynbrook, Long Island, mm -hmm. Malvern, mm -hmm. Lynbrook, which were side-by-side -side neighboring towns. My mother lived in Lindbrook. My father lived in Malvern, and they were high school, you know, sweethearts. She was the head cheerleader. My father was the head basketball player. <laughs> and so of that group of people, your grandparents and your parents, do you remember clearly your grandfather you remember as planting the pole beans? Among those four people, were there others who were gardeners and who, who you remember sort of sharing any of the skills and love with you? I only remember my grandfather as being the gardener. Mm -hmm. My grandmother, of course, was the homemaker. She made the food. She, you know, reaped, you know, the, the pole beans came in and she obviously made, I don't really clearly remember what she made with the pole beans, but we, you know, bean salad, I suppose, and, and steamed. Mm -hmm. my, my grandparents were both of Finnish descent and emigrated, came uh, through Ellis Island and landed on Long Island. So a lot of the food, the cuisine was Scandinavian, Finnish, heavily cooked, overcooked, you know, <laughs> very different from what I, the kind of food I eat now. Mm -hmm. But um, those pole beans probably were steamed and really cooked to death. Yeah. But you got to visit them in their freshest state, which is, exactly. uh, which was I a formative them. moment, right? Right. I saw them on the vine. I got to, I'm sure I, I did, don't remember picking so much, but I'm sure I was, you know, my grandfather, I'm sure I helped him pick the pole beans and, yeah. you know, 
brought them inside. So peripatetic is a word that comes up in description of you and your life and your career uh, in the best possible way. So describe your your journey from being this little person with potato farms and pole beans and what led you to becoming a professional plants person in this world, Bob. Well, yeah, peripatetic. And I, I, it was my friend Jer- Janet Marinelli at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, who was director of publications and the Brooklyn Botanic Garden series of quarterly handbook series that were published for more than 50 years, mm-hmm. who kind of coined that. It was in one of my bios. She said, you know, peripatetic all, all of a sudden showed up. So it was not a, na- uh, a word that I came up with. I like to describe myself as a happy wanderer uh-huh. in a way. Um, but my journey, you know, growing up on Long Island, finishing school in New Jersey in Heightstown, sort of that sort of armpit of New Jersey. If you know New Jersey, Heightstown, Princeton, Cranberry, Trenton, mm-hmm. in that sort of midsection of New Jersey. So I'm, I'm really a New York, a Long Island boy, and but a New York metro area, you know, mm-hmm. always had that New York City as kind of the, the, the central gathering place. Why did I go choose Wittenberg? It was a nice liberal arts college. Uh, it was away from New Jersey. It wasn't too far away. Um, and Ohio is rife with wonderful small liberal arts school. So mm-hmm. that's, I mm-hmm. went, but I really was on a, I really thought I was going to be a country doctor. That was really my vision as what my profession was going to be. Mm-hmm. So I started, you know, as an undergraduate with biology and on a pre-med track and all four years of undergraduate school, I continued kind of in that direction And I applied to medical schools and was accepted at a couple, um, but decided maybe I should work in a hospital setting before I really kind of throw myself wholeheartedly into this profession. Mm -hmm. And it could have just been the experience that I had in a hospital in Springfield, Ohio, which is where Wittenberg was, but it just, it was, it was not meant for me. I just, it was yeah. not a good experience. I just was not happy. And, and it could have been just that particular situation. And then, you know, you start to reevaluate, well, so what are my passions? And going back, it was really uh, plant biology and taxonomy. Those were the things that I just really took to as an undergraduate, yeah. the things that are most memorable. I can remember my professor, Dr. DeLangley, taking us on a uh, plant collecting and taxonomy field trip to the Great Smoky Mountains Mm. in one of the courses. And it was just like, wow, four or five days kind of backpacking through the Great Smoky Mountains wilderness collecting. You know, I don't know whether we but we and the and the the plant presses, you know, carrying those things with you. (laughs) It was just, it was the most magical thing. So I think that's kind of where this all started. Yeah. And so then you go through this reevaluation period and you recognize these moments of real interest and, and magic, as you say. And is it at that moment that you decide to look into plant 
work plant study. Tell us the next step. So the next step, you know, reevaluating was what what aspect of plants and plant biology and taxonomy was really meant for me. And I don't know, I guess I applied for graduate degrees in horticulture and landscape architecture at a number of universities around the country. And I landed at North Carolina State University. Mm. My major professor was Dr. J.C. Ralston. And clearly he is... (laughs) He is the most influential person in in my life as I think about, you know, met a very tragic, untimely mm-hmm. death in, in, a, in a car accident. But he was the person who just, you know, he, he guided me through my graduate work at North Carolina State University, which combined horticulture, a bit of landscape architecture, and a bit of forest resources management. So Mm. it was a nice combination of kind of degrees. I kind of charted my own, made up my own degree as Mm -hmm. I went along there. Bob Hyland is a plantsman and plant world activist and advocate. From early thoughts that he'd be a country doctor, he's now a nurturing plant person to communities large and small. As such, he has been party to many shifts and changes within the horticultural world these past decades. From the renaissance of specialty plant nurseries, a few times, to trending garden design, to the innovative changes in making public horticulture more inclusive and relevant in regards to education and audience engagement, Bob has been there. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, Bob is the epitome of the generous gardening nature that is part of why I love gardeners and plants people. They are generous and expansive. They are always learning, always growing. Pardon the pun, but it's true. Bob shares this reflection about his shared garden with Andrew. Andrew and my eight-year-old garden is perched on the edge of Forest Park in Northwest Portland with magnificent, humbling views of snow-capped Cascade Peaks. The garden is far from being just a collection of plants. Rather, it is an orchestrated landscape palette that offers 365 days of interest with flowers, foliage, and vibrant winter stem color. Harberton Hill, which is what we call it, is a reflection of our combined work experiences at world-class public gardens and for celebrated garden personalities. Plantings are a melting pot of garden traditions for sure, but these are increasingly informed by our hillside native flora, the changing climate, and the summer dry months. I love to watch people's reaction, he says, and listen to their comments as they experience our garden. 
Often, it's not the big blasts of summer color from Agostiki, Zauschneria, Salvia, Dahlias, or Penstemons, but the more sophisticated play of leaf textures, shapes and form, of Arctostaphylus, Callistamon, Mahonia, Ribes, Hydrangea, Lonicera, and Osmanthus that garner the most attention and start conversations. Of the six personal gardens I've had in my lifetime, our Portland garden is the most rewarding. Bob shares his horticultural passion and knowledge forward in a wide variety of ways. For people young and old, for the better of us all as plants people in this world. Are you on social media? It's a wonderful way for even the busiest among us to be connected in planty community. Bob and I are both on Facebook and Instagram and are pretty active with our own pages on both of these platforms, as well as with community groups like the Hortisexuals or the Hardy Plant Society of Oregon. Find us there, send pictures, introduce yourselves, share the passions of cultivating your place forward with others. It's how we all grow after all, isn't it? I'm active on Facebook weekly and on Instagram almost daily. We're all in this together, and we plant-loving, gardening impulse kind of people, we have a way of finding one another. Now, back to our conversation with Bob Highland, gardener, plants person, lover of life. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. James Chester Ralston, or J.C. Ralston, was a noted horticulturalist and professor at the University of North Carolina. We're back now with plantsman Bob Highland, who considers his great fortune in having been a student of J.C.'s. Bob credits his professor as having been a mentor in many ways, horticulturally and culturally as a gay man thriving in the horticultural world. J.C. also, he was this brilliant person, excellent plantsman. He knew how to build community. And he also kind of opened my eyes in a way to my own sexuality. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a gay person. And he fostered community throughout the horticulture field across North Carolina and across the country, you know, gay men and gay women who were in the field who, you know, either were working at in universities or at public gardens or at commercial nurseries. And he called it the Levangelist Society. He kind of held this thing together and would occasionally send out newsletters and built a community of early on of, of gay people in, in a field, which I found, I don't know, I found quite magical. And what years would that have spanned for you and in time, Bob? Because I think that was pretty radical at the time and pretty kind of groundbreaking in a lot of ways. I would agree. And so the years I was at North Carolina State University span in 1976 through 1976. 78. So mm -hmm. those two years, it might have been a year earlier, but sort of the mid to latter part of the 70s. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of puts it in context. Yep, and exactly. from there, my first horticultural job was at a restored Moravian congregation town in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, mm. called Old Salem. 
And I, well, my first job was sort of the managing horticulturist to help maintain and restore what was, you know, through historical records, you know, this the gardens around this uh, restored Moravian congregation town. And I know that you've had some conversations with good friends of mine from Monticello, Peggy mm-hmm. Cornett, mm-hmm. and maybe maybe Peter Hatch. I don't know whether you got onto Peter, but they both worked at Old Salem as well. Peter was the first horticultural director. I followed him. Peggy worked for me for a while at, at Old Salem, and then we both went off to the Longwood graduate program yeah. after that. So, so I, I think... You know, one of the things that's already becoming clear in your story is how the universe has put you and this community of notable plants people, you know, to talk about J.C. Ralston in North Carolina and then Peter Hatch and Peggy Cornett, Peter Hatch being, you know, a really kind of groundbreaking leader at Monticello and that historic garden and leading it into a whole new century or decades of of work and progress and this period of time that spans your work and your career as well has been a really innovative one in the plant world. Talk about the the Longwood Gardens and what that program is and and what that meant to you as you moved along in this this work of kind of quickly becoming public gardening and, and then you know you go off in slightly a different direction but that's never left your blood either so the longwood garden longwood gardens had in the 70s about the time i was at nc state university started a graduate program with aligned with the university of delaware for the accreditation and the coursework And the focus was on training leaders in the field of public garden administration. Mm -hmm. So to go off and kind of find their ways into leadership positions, be it education, be it research, be it uh, display in public gardens around the country. And I was... Interestingly, Peggy Cornett was the one at at Old Salem who came to me and said, do you know anything about this program and would you write me a recommendation? And of course, I wrote one because, you know, I love Peggy to death. She continues to be one of my fast rooted friends Mm -hmm. forever. So I wrote this recommendation and Peggy got in and started telling me about her experiences. And I thought, gee, if Peggy can get into this program, certainly I can. So I applied the year following and lo and behold, I am, you know, accepted into the Longwood graduate program. And I go up and start my two year adventure. Peggy and I overlap by a year. Um, But Longwood Gardens, I know many of your listeners will know of Longwood Gardens. I find Longwood doesn't have the same name recognition in the Pacific Northwest and on the West Coast as it does perhaps in the East. Mm -hmm. But Longwood is one of the several DuPont estates that have become public institutions devoted to horticulture and, and culture and art. In the Delaware Valley. Uh, Longwood Gardens was started by Pierre DuPont and has become a horticultural showplace. Uh, Pierre DuPont started it in 1954 
and it's you know now a public institution run by a nonprofit board, right. but extremely well endowed. And Pierre Dupont really developed the core of what we know as Longwood Gardens today during his lifetime. Four acres of gardens under glass, this immense conservatory. He traveled widely through Europe, you know, a man of wealth and with his wife. And they would encounter and experience things in other parts of the world and they would come back. So there was an Italian water garden and a main fountain garden, kind of a la Versailles and, and Vola Vicomte. And so I just was exposed and immersed in this incredible sort of show place where, and this, I, I really credit Longwood for helping me to sort of, you know, I, I think that's where my sense of adventure, exploration, not mm. be timid and fall into a job and stay put for the rest of my life. I have been more open to adventure yeah. and also sort of setting the bar and this sense, doing things with a sense of perfection, mm -hmm. you know, always striving for more, you know, you can always do it better. You can always raise the bar. And that's Longwood Gardens. Just, you know, they continue to evolve and they don't rest on their laurels. And it's, it's interesting to me because there is so much um, that you could look at the Longwood Garden history and facility and you could really dismiss it with wealthy white privilege. Exactly. And, and yet they – all of that is true right there. But at the same time, someone along the way somewhere had this vision for taking this resource, this wealth of, of resources and information and knowledge and, and putting it into creating, cultivating, supporting – helping young people move up in the world of horticulture with the idea of making sure that horticulture as a concept did not just get left to the sidelines as something that was nice but not necessary, pretty but not substantial. And they are creating the horticulture leaders of our world today and ongoing that are addressing issues of inequity, of lack of inclusion, of just some really important things in our public gardens that I have seen through, you know, leaders like Mary Pat Matheson down in Atlanta and just leaders at big public gardens that are making a big difference in our world across all boundaries right now. I Do I love and adore everybody you're mentioning? Kind of. <laughs> But Mary Pat and I served on the board of what was formerly the Amer ABGA, the American Association of Botanical Gardens, um, now the APGA, the American Public Garden Association. So you graduate from Longwood, and you then enter a period in your life where you really are dedicated to, to public garden work. Walk us through those years that took you to San Francisco and then back to New York City. So I graduate from Longwood Gardens and lo and behold, a position opens up at Longwood. They actually are recruiting me for this position, mm. and which I thought, and lo and behold, I interviewed and you know, got that, was given that position. And really, I mean, very few people, uh, one other person who 
continues to work at Longwood Gardens. Colvin Randall, a good friend of mine, was in the graduate program as well and fell into a job. Has, has his whole career has been at Longwood. Mm. Um, I, I was in the uh, my my position title was visitor education specialist. Mm. What does that mean? A lot of people thought that Longwood just sent me around visiting public gardens, which I thought I laughed about often because I thought that would have been the best job in the world. <laughs> and, and who else? What other organization but Longwood would have the finances and the resources to do that for an employee? But now my job was really kind of threefold. I, I taught a lot in the adult education program as well as the student programs horticulture, plant identification. I wrote publications for visitors, helped with wayfinding devices, the mm -hmm. garden maps, the pamphlets, the signage. So it was really kind of helping people understand what Longwood was all about. And also had a little bit, was given a little bit of leeway to do some design at Longwood, which was very unusual, I thought, at that time. But I got to design a few. There was a, a great parking lot planting uh, that I got to design and the Idea Garden. So the Idea Garden was a four to five acre piece of Longwood where it was broken up into uh, different plant categories and design ideas. So there was a section on vegetables where you got to see the latest in, you know, introductions in vegetables and ways of growing. Uh, there was a section for annuals. There was a, a great perennial border. And then there was an example garden. It was a home demonstration garden. So yeah. it had the facade of a house. and. Interestingly, one side of it was to show more what people with a little bit more suburban and acreage could do. And then one side of it was a small contained, you know, patio with some raised vegetable boxes and a lot of lattice work that might suggest somebody who lived in the city who, you know, had less in-ground planting space and what you could do with you know, on different levels with raised boxes and in mm -hmm. narrow borders. So yeah. it was a bit contrived, but it kind of really did showcase and gave me fodder for, you know, lots of teaching ideas and, and, and writing that publication that accompanied that exhibit. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I want to say, as you're talking there, I mean, this was basically the bulk of the 1980s. And I want to say that that wayfinding a museum or public space thinking about visitor interpretation in such a way, I feel like that was fairly early in that field as well, that it that that was a whole field of study and expertise that has really blossomed from then to now. Would you say that's true? Very much so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, they were, and again, Longwood had the resources, mm -hmm. but also had the vision to yeah. understand that there, this would be really be beneficial to the visitor experience. I mean, Longwood was very much about wanting the visitor to enjoy the beauty of Longwood, but understand a bit more and, and take it to different levels and a, a variety of education programs. Yeah. And so then here's where your peripatetic really kicks in, because <laughs> all of a sudden you go from Pennsylvania to California and San Francisco. Tell us about that move. 
So Longwood Gardens sends me on a trip to, and and really this was really great because Longwood could, you know, had had the resources to do this for employees to expand their knowledge. And I went on a trip that started in Los Angeles, um, and it really was a trip that focused on uh, all of the seed growing that was going on and seed introductions. Mm. And we ended up in the, the last stop on that tour was San Francisco. That's where the bus ended that tour. I was with a colleague from Longwood, Landon Scarlett, and we were on this tour, also looking for a designer for an indoor conservatory exhibit, uh, one of the houses that had been devoted to, really didn't have much of a focus, but we were intent on designing a California Mediterranean, and it was a, it was a loose concept. It ended up becoming the Silver Garden at Longwood and the conservatories. And we did find a garden designer who, and you'll have to, we'll have to, and Isabel Green. Mm. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, her name almost didn't come surface in my brain. But yeah, we found <laughs> Isabel Green and she developed this really marvelous indoor display that was very sort of cutting edge for Longwood. It was not tra- traditional kind of beds and borders kinds of thing, you know, with very linear, rectilinear lines. Um, this was a freeform sort of mosaic. And and Isabel's, I remember her inspiration really was flying air airlines, flying across the country and looking down at different geographic formations and patterns on, you know, that mother nature has on, on earth and mm-hmm. looking at you know, estuarine and river patterns. And so that sort of, you know, fueled her design. Wow. Um, so all of that really sort of sort of stuck with me. It's just um, quite marvelous when I think about it. Yeah, yeah. And that ultimately leads you to to working on the West Coast. So the San Francisco, landing in San Francisco, uh, I think, I, you know, it's like, I immediately fell in love. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was just like, I'm, I'm moving here. I'm going to live here. I'm going to garden here. It's just <laughs> so magical. You know, it was the city by the bay, right? Yeah. Right? Armistead, Mopin, and Tales of the City. It was that time. And it was like, wow, okay, this was meant to be, right? Yeah. Um, so I go back to Longwood and start Curiously looking for a job on the West Coast in San Francisco and the Bay Area. I actually was interviewed and applied for a job at UC Botanical Garden. Was not the selected person for that job. Um, but decided, okay, my partner at the time was a videotape editor, continues to be a videotape editor. And uh, he got a job easily in San Francisco. I just thought, well, okay, I'll take my chances. Um, we're moving to San Francisco. I'll find a job. And I did. I landed a job at um, Striving Arboretum, the Botanical Garden in Golden Gate Park, which is now the San Francisco Botanical Gardens. Mm-hmm. 
Bob Highland is the owner of Highland Garden Design and Contained Exuberance in Portland, Oregon. A career plantsman, Bob has studied under renowned plants people, including J.C. Ralston. He has worked at prestigious public gardens, including Longwood Gardens and the San Francisco Botanic Garden. He has served on even more and more diverse horticultural boards across the country. He shares with us today his insights and experiences as a lifelong home gardener and a dedicated career professional, helping to move the needle on how horticulture is perceived and practiced and appreciated in our world. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Okay, so thinking out loud here. Horticultural service, as Bob calls the chip implanted in him while he was in graduate studies at Longwood Gardens, it's an important thing in this world. Serving on boards, volunteering in gardens, on trails, in schools, or museums, these are great ways to share what you love forward and to help shape the look and feel and priorities of the next horticultural generation. If environmental concerns, food concerns, social justice concerns, cultural literacy concerns, if any of these rank highly for you, I want to invite you to think about how you could go to work in even small gardening or plant ways to address these concerns. When I think of this conversation with Bob, Coupled with past conversations with the likes of Leah Penniman, Melody Overstreet, Turning Into Flowers of South Africa, Mary Reynolds in Ireland, even last week's conversation with staff and contest participants from the Brooklyn Botanic Garden's greenest block in Brooklyn, these plants people are all putting their plant love and their larger concerns for our world together and taking small actions to make a difference. Every one of us can, and together, the compounded interest on that investment, well, that is something worth cultivating, don't you think? Now, back to our conversation with plantsman Bob Highland, the happy wanderer, a moniker which reminds me of some of my favorite vines and self-seeders, wandering around the garden, sharing their gifts. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back now to our conversation with plantsman Bob Highland. He's speaking about his longtime journey and work in the wider horticultural world. He picks up now with his story at the point when he begins his life on the West Coast, having landed a job at Striving Arboretum, which we now know as the San Francisco Botanical Gardens. So there I was director of education. Okay. Uh, I followed Dick Turner, who so many of us know, who was the editor of Pacific Horticulture Magazine for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I ran adult and uh, sort of a mushrooming children's education program. We built on sort of the back part of Striving, a place where not too many people went. It was kind of beyond where the nursery is. 
But, mm-hmm. you know, we just threw together some raised beds and started started a children's summertime children's education program mm-hmm. where children got, you know, to get their hands in the soil, not just to take a tour of the gardens, but to really work the soil, to grow plants, to grow vegetables, to grow ornamentals. Uh, there was a little natural area with some wetland. And so there was some you know, biology and ecology programming that went on, but it was really sort of seat of the pants. It was so far different from Longwood Gardens and yeah. the resources <laughs> that were available. But, yeah. you know, in a way it was, I, I remember it vividly. It was one of the trustees, Jack O'Brien. He just, he, he was on a mission to make this happen. And he and I, I remember, we went shopping for wood together, you know, probably one, you know, Home Depot or one, and, we bought it. I remember throwing it in the truck and we built those. We had volunteers helping us, but we built these, you know, raised beds on this hillside. It was all tiered and, you know, we threw it together very quickly, but it happened. Right. I made it happen. Right. And again, that feels really sort of, you know, we're talking late 80s, early, early 90s. That seems like it was pretty cutting edge at the moment as well, this idea that Public gardens should also engage small children getting their hands dirty, not just an experience where you have information handed to you, but this interactive engagement that allows for learning while doing seems like it was really coming into its own at that time and has seriously taken off. Seriously taken off. Yeah. That's kind of the way we prefer to do things now, right? Yes, yes. I mean, all, yeah. And all research shows, right, that that we learn in so many different ways that to just have information spoken at us rather than engaged, no matter what age we are, uh, we learn better. We can, we can hear and feel and smell and think as well as just, you know, accept, receive information. I totally agree. So, Maybe we thought that might have been a little cutting edge or on the forefront, uh, my experience at San Francisco Botanical Garden. But from striving SFBG, I traveled back across the country to take a job as vice president of horticulture at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. And lo and behold, this whole experiential children's gardening thing Mm -hmm. is not new or novel at all. Right. Brooklyn has been doing this for... The Children's Garden now is in its 105th year of right. operation. Yeah. Same acre, you know, Brooklyn Botanic Garden is only 52 acres, so it's not a huge, you know, tract of land. And the Children's Garden is only one acre of that, you know, on the edge of a very busy road. But for all those 105 years, every year that acre of land the children in various age groups, of course, from the get-go in the spring, you know, learn how to measure their plots, you know, math is involved, how to string them out, how to work the soil, you know, how to how to seed things. You know, there are many jokes and statistics about how many tons of radishes and carrots have come out of the children's garden. <laughs> but it but it but it's true. It you know, it is so true. And During my time at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, of course, being, you know, sort of in an executive position, I worked very closely with the board. There were a number of of people on the board at that time who had actually gone through the 
children's garden program. So this kind of sense of history, it was like, well, no, this, you know, whole children's gardening movement is really experiential and Mm -hmm. practical and hands-on is not all that new, right? Right. Everything kind of comes around and goes around. Yes. And we get new perspectives on them, I would say, you know, which which is great because as our gardens grow, our gardeners grow, we, we bring new insights both environmentally and culturally into such a thing as a children's garden, which has come a long way these last hundred and however many years. Um, these threads of both horticultural knowledge, plant science, but also this strong influence of the importance of education. This is a really strong theme in your life because you go from Brooklyn Botanic to your almost nine years of building a specialty nursery uh, with Andrew at Loomis Creek Nursery, and then your life now in Portland. But on top of all of those day jobs, because they were, even though we know they're 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every day of the year, you are part of many, many other organizations on boards, on committees, you know, being a volunteer, being active, all on your sort of extra time. Talk a little bit about that before we move to your home garden. So this sense of I call it public service yeah. or serve. <laughs> and I, I do blame uh, the coordinator of the Longwood Graduate Program, <laughs> Dick, Dick Lighty. I still, every time I see Dick, I say, would you please remove the chip you put <laughs> embedded in my brain that says it is really good to serve on boards and it's, you know, it's really, <laughs> you have a lot to share and please serve on boards. But I find something about it quite it just fits me as a person. Mm-hmm. I like giving back. I like serving. I like the sense of community. I think I have vision. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, people might, you might argue with that, but you mm-hmm. know, it's nice to think that I have vision. So let, let me think that I have vision. And I like to share that with people. And I think I, I also have common sense, you know, I can sort of I think I have a way of cutting through a lot of busy stuff that gets sometimes gets in the way. I often call it baggage. You know, it can get to the objective and to the point. So I think people have found this, you know, rather a good thing to have on a board occasionally. Mm-hmm. Somebody who just speaks their mind and, and gets to the cuts to the chase, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I want to end uh, with... What we've talked about this whole time is working with, thinking about, advocating for, writing about, you know, designing for gardens. And yet, I think for you as well as for me, what that is all rooted in is our love of our gardens, of those flowers and food, plants, and that time in which we are just in the dirt with those plants. Immersed in the garden, whether it's like last night, what was I doing? I was cutting back, I was planting, you know, you're actually physically in the garden, mentally, physically, spiritually, everything. And so Andrew and I uh, 
it's a little smaller than our 25 acres back in the Hudson Valley. Not that we gardened all that 25 acres. So much of it was flat fields that were hayed by a neighbor farmer. But we have uh, almost three quarters of an acre on a hillside just on the edge of Forest Park here in Portland, which is this magical natural area, the spine of Portland that runs to the west. Mm-hmm. And not in the trees. We didn't want didn't want to be in the trees, but I can walk up to that very quickly and get in a trailhead and be in that whole park system. But we have this incredible sort of panoramic view of the Cascade Range on clear days, of course, when you can see them. But mm-hmm. Mount St. Helens is dead on axis with the front door. Mm. And we've built this hillside garden, which is kind of a series of different layers. And it's given us opportunity to sort of garden in a different spirit and a different aesthetic Mm -hmm. than back east. Again, we traded up three hardiness zones. So um, I gave a talk at the Northwest Flower and Garden Show last year called Romancing the Zone, <laughs> you know, because it was. I mean, it's like, who wouldn't want to move to the Pacific Northwest and, and trade up three hardiness zones? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the Pacific Northwest is this magical place where kind of everything grows, which is a blessing and a trap at the same time. Because I think it confuses gardeners. You know, you can grow everything, but that doesn't mean we should grow everything. Right. You know, so in in designing and and planting our own garden, it's given us opportunity to really think about climate adapted plants, plants that tolerate summer dry. Mm-hmm. And we are summer dry here in Portland. So many of my East Coast friends just think we it rains here all the time. <laughs> And when you actually look at annual rainfall, so Portland, you know, give or take, there's so many little microclimates, but 36 inches on on the average. And back in Brooklyn, you know, New York City, it's 47. So it's 10 inches of difference, you know, give or take. And we've had dry years and wetter years, of course. Um, You know, maybe it rains here more days during the year than back east, but nonetheless, summer is like bone dry. Right. And, and they seem, summer seem to be getting hotter, you know, and that can bounce around as we've all seen. We seem to get stuck in patterns. So it's really working with uh, a catalog of plants that a lot of uh, Pacific Northwest natives, a lot of plants coming from other dry climate regions, Mediterranean climate regions of the mm-hmm. world, like Australia, New Zealand, Chile, had the great opportunity to lead a Pacific Horticulture Society tour to Chile last November, which was so magical. And so to kind of work, and it's sort of like working at some of those public gardens who all have these conservatories and grow the flora from all these different regions of the world, but I can kind of have it here in my own garden on my hillside and my three quarters acre Mm -hmm. and and just experiment with plants. And we garden the way we've always gardened and the the way we know and based on our experience and history. But Andrew and I will go through this little, if something new is coming into the garden, it's like, no, we kind of grew that in the Hudson Valley or back east. And yeah, we loved it. And it's widely grown back there. And it's a staple part of a border, perhaps. But now let's move on. Yeah. Let's try something new. 
Let's so, try something new. Um, so yeah. our, our garden is really, and what people really seem to respond to in our garden, I've heard this over and over again, so I'm, I'm taking it as kind of, it's kind of true, maybe. <laughs> you know, when you're looking at your own garden, you go like, eh, it's not that great. But it is, uh, we do have, I think, a way of layering. It's very textural. It's not onesie-twosie. It's not a collector's garden. It has a flow and a rhythm about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and this is, this is what I try now as I work with clients and do consultations. I mean, this is what I sell. I mean, this is what I'm, you know, yeah. appropriate plantings for the Pacific Northwest, the summer dry, the naturalistic, the textured, and the four-season approach. Yeah. And I was thinking about this just this weekend because it was, we do a lot with uh, colored stem willows and dogwoods mm. that, you know, we pollard or we cut off, we manage so that they produce all this vigorous, colorful, twiggy growth during the growing season and then in the winter. And even here in Portland, you know, when I think about, so it's it's really three to four months that you're looking at we have colored stem willows that we pollard. Um, we have lots of colored stem dogwoods. And it's like, that's a long time. That's a lot of bang for the buck, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I almost hated to cut all that away this weekend. And although Andrew did it, I have to admit, Andrew, <laughs> I was working. Andrew did the pollarding. <laughs> oh. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today, Bob. It has been such a pleasure to speak with you and your career and heart for this work, as well as the beauty of your garden, really is an, is an education for all of us. It's been great for me to reflect on, you know, kind of my, my journey, my, my yeah. happy wandering. Happy Wanderer, plantsman Bob Highland, has had a long career in horticulture, involved in public, private, design, and education in the horticultural world. A lifelong happy gardener as well, a lover of plants and working on behalf of the importance of plants and the plants world is part of almost every aspect of Bob's life, professionally and personally. Plants, as we know, are a passion and a calling, far more often than they are simply a career choice. They are a way of life and a way of making a good life, one that most plants people want to share forward. Bob's story is a perfect testament to this. He's worked at public gardens around the country. He and his husband, Andrew, built and owned Loomis Creek Specialty Nursery in upstate New York for nearly a decade before moving to Portland, Oregon. He is the owner of Highland Garden Design and contained exuberance in Portland, where he and Andrew are dedicated home gardeners on a hillside at the edge of town. Join us again next week when we're joined by another plants person of generous, planty nature, Margaret Roach. Her lovely books include her classic, A Way to Garden, a title for which her popular garden podcast is also named. The book is reissued this year by Timber Press in celebration of the book's 21st anniversary. 
join us. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from Bob and Andrew's home and garden life, see this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Our engineer these past few years has been Sky Schofield. He is leaving us this week and taking over for him will be Matt Fiddler. We will miss Sky's kindness and his expansive personality as part of the Cultivating Place team. Original theme music for the show is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.